Research is really important because, by definition, it's the only way to get new knowledge. There's so much that isn't yet known that it's just a cool time to be in science. I think at the end of the day, what really gets us out of bed in the morning is just the curiosity, trying to understand things we didn't understand the day before. Welcome to REACH, the podcast that tells the stories of researchers, their studies, and how their work impacts you and the world you live in. I'm Cole Cullen. And I'm Beth Bamford. Today we're going to tell you about technology, more specifically, some of the research being done at Penn State about technology. Fake news is something you see a lot about in the news or on the internet, but what is it really? What is fake news? What makes it fake? And how do you know if it's fake? I talked to Dr. Sham Sundar of the College of Communications about the research he and his team are doing around fake news. I'm Sham Sundar. I'm a professor of uh, media studies at Penn State. I study media effects uh, and and I co-direct a research laboratory on campus called the Media Effects Research Laboratory. Fake news. What is it? (laughs) You know, it's easy to think, ah, fake news. It's it's a joke. It's a Mm punchline. But it's much more than that. Yeah. Fake news is is very real phenomenon. (laughs) Fake news is not just uh, false information. Fake news is uh, a conglomeration of different kinds of uh, news information that ranges from uh, completely false, fabricated news to polarized content, to satire, to misreporting, to commentary, uh, persuasive information like native advertising, and even citizen journalism sometimes can be wrong, and that can also be categorized to fake news. So there are different aspects to fake news. I've always kind of celebrated the ability of newer media to enable users to serve as sources of communication. And so in some ways, the receivers of communication are now becoming sources of communication. So I really liked when blogs came on the scene and um, was happy to see some positive effects of empowerment um, that uh, this kind of technology uh, brings forth. But uh, around the time of the 2016 election, when BuzzFeed uh, reported that uh, the engagement, online social media engagement with uh, false stories surpassed for the very first time compared to the engagement with real stories, that's when I think uh, the fake news phenomenon kind of exploded into being. And so uh, our interest with uh, fake news has been to kind of see if there are any uh, ways in which we can uh, understand why people fall for fake news. And over the last decade or so, a lot of our studies have shown that um, when people receive information through online means, the source signal kind of gets lost in the mix. Because, uh, you know, imagine if you get to see a link to a story on your Facebook in a wall, and that's been posted by a friend who picked it up from uh, a tweet made by a politician who picked it up from the New York Times reporting on an AP story. There are so many sources, you know, AP, New York Times, you know, Twitter, the politician, your friend, Facebook, so you have so many, it's a, it's a chain of sources, what we call you know, source layering in my work. And we found that in general, people lose track of who or what the real source is. And as a result, they, they are less attentive 
to the credibility or the lack thereof of the sources that really are the cause for that a particular story. We also find that in general, people overtrust their social media contact. So when they say, oh, my friend sent me the story on Facebook, they tend to attribute that to their friend. And they don't pause to think that the friend is not trained in journalism, does not know how to you know, check fa facts. Uh, and so they don't stop to think that these are not trained professionals. Instead, they go by the kind of warmth that friends generate and say, oh, you know, they must have only posted it because I, my, I should be interested or it's to my benefit. Another issue that happens with uh, sourcing is that uh, increasingly a lot of our media are customized by us. So we, in general, um, customize what kind of information come into our uh, portal, so to speak. So we say, I want only scores from Penn State football. I don't want Ohio State. I want weather only for state college. So we create all these gates, and these technologies have allowed us to create these gates for us, so much so that the the, the news environment it looks very familiar to you in your smartphone or on your computer. And as a result, our research shows that people are lulled into a false sense of security because it's they see the daily newspaper as kind of the daily me, and they identify so strongly with it that they don't process the information as systematically as they should. Instead, they kind of process it much more superficially and let their antenna down, and so they don't watch out for credibility cues to check if, in fact, this is legitimate story and whatnot. So in, in general, I've been kind of finding that on the one hand, people are less attentive to source signal, they are over-trusting of their social media contacts, and they uh, let the antenna down when a so story comes to them through a very familiar environment like their customized portal or a smartphone. These are some reasons why we've left fake news kind of affect us or we become vulnerable uh, to fake news. My next interest then turned to what can we do about it? And so we've been now involved with um, a project that has been funded by the National Science Foundation where we are trying to come up with ways for users to be alerted to this kind of content. And so we've been working on this project where we've tried to map out this territory to a point where we can write machine learning algorithms that can automatically detect and look for uh, these different kinds of fake news and be able to tag them as this is plain false or this is um, you know misreporting or this is commentary or this is satire with a certain level of you know probability and we you know we want to write an algorithm that uh, looks at a number of different factors so it's not just uh, the fact that it comes from um, you know, uh, unverified source. It could also be the fact that it is only circulated in social media and has never entered mainstream media, which means no journalist has touched that story. It looks at linguistic features. There are all kinds of giveaways in a fake story. You know, dateline is not quite correct. The way it's uh, written often doesn't follow professional AP style. And there are other structural features like uh, the URL doesn't look normal. So we want an algorithm that would scour all these details about a particular story as it's coming into somebody's feed and be able to kind of alert users 
to the possibility that this might be false in one way or another. And this kind of you know undertaking is a, it's a big engineering undertaking. And so we are just you know getting started with mapping out the territory and writing the algorithm at this point. And then we want to um, you know fine tune the algorithm to a point where it's fairly accurate. We can never be 100% sure, but we can be certainly sure enough to alert users to take action or to take a closer look at a story. And that's what you know, our goal is you know, with this project. When you say alert, what does that look like? Well, we don't know how different platforms and different devices will implement our algorithm because what our, our algorithm ultimately would do is give you a certain probability score. That's kind of our goal to say this particular incoming story could be you know, it's 90% chance that it's commentary. It's 10% chance that it's real news, that kind of stuff. And then different media outlets can decide how they're going to convert that to a flag or an alert or, you know, something like that. Our goal is to design an algorithm which then people can use however they want and the companies can use however they want. Is the prevalence of fake news Mm -hmm. affecting what we call real news? Definitely. I think it's definitely affecting. uh, That's a great question. One of the things that we study in our fake news project is also the effect of clickbaits um, because there's this economy that drives fake news. One of the main reasons why a bunch of Macedonian teenagers started engaging in fake news during the 2016 presidential election is because they would make money out of writing fake stories. So it's not you know, just for, you know, polarizing political opinions uh, or to create uh, discord. But uh, there are real human beings who will make money based on the number of times the story gets clicked or number of times it gets uh, tweeted across uh, the social media universe. And that's why they write these very provocative, often false uh, headlines so that it can attract, you know, clicks. Once they click, of course, they don't care further because you know story could be completely different from what the headline promised. But clickbait itself is a big object of study among people who uh, you know study fake news because uh, we know that that is uh, the first point of entry into this false uh, universe. But one of the uh, unfortunate uh, consequences of that is that um, the threshold for people to click has been kind of going up. So when they then encounter a regular news story by a regular news outlet, it's you know not clickworthy. It doesn't seem attractive enough for them to um, you know click on. So what the news media have, are having to do, the legitimate, credible news media, mainstream media, is to um, actually create clickbaity headlines for otherwise normal stories. And so you'll see now a, a dramatic change in the in the kind of story headlines that uh, you know respectable newspapers carry and that's primarily I feel because they are competing especially in the online space. Why is it important? Why is this lab important? Why is the work you do important to the everyday Joe? If we don't have this knowledge about how this, you know, this particular object that we call media affect individuals, we will not know how to react with it. Almost everybody has a smartphone. What do you use your smartphone for? You know, the normal text messaging, Facebook, YouTube videos. Do you play games? I don't, but my kids do. Of course you don't. (laughs) 
The smartphone can be so much more than just a gaming device or a communication device. It's actually very important in research. Dr. Marty Slowinski is going to tell us about how it accelerates research studies by enabling a technology used to capture and analyze data all on a device that everybody already has, the smartphone. I'm Marty Slowinski. I'm a professor in human development and family studies, um, and I also direct the Center for Healthy Aging. What types of things are you currently researching? I've always been very interested in you know, what happens on a daily basis that can affect how mentally sharp we are, how we perform. And you know, when you take the GREs or the SATs, you go into this high stakes testing situation and you get to show what you have once. And what our research and the research of others has shown is that we aren't always performing at our peak. And there's a lot of variability from day to day and moment to moment within the day that's related to our stress and, and stuff. So I've always been interested in that. In this study, we have people um, carry around smartphones. And um, on the smartphones, there's an app that will prompt them in the morning when they wake up to tell us what they think their day is going to be like. So they answer questions like, you know, do you think today is going to be pleasant? Is it going to be enjoyable? Is it going to be stressful? And then throughout the day, um, they also answer some questions as to whether or not anything stressful or pleasant has happened. And when they do that, they also play a few brain games. Uh, so they'll do some cognitive testing as they go throughout the day. And what we found, and this was a little unexpected, is your morning outlook. When you wake up um, in the morning and if you think today is going to be stressful, um, your memory performance is worse later in the day, even if nothing stressful happened. So this is one of those unintended consequences? Yeah. That, or... yeah. Then we became interested in this. Has anyone done work on this topic? And we found that there is actually relatively little work um, looking at how stress anticipation affects your well-being, your emotional function, and your cognitive functioning. I think many of us are stressed about the things that might happen, um, yet a lot of the research is focused just on how things that have already happened are affecting us. So I do think this is a, um, a neglected area in, in health research on, on how this outlook and these anticipatory processes might impact us. Um, and then is there something you can do about it? Um, I think so, right? Because there, there are, are proven methods for trying to manage your stress, uh, mindfulness meditation, practicing uh, gratitude, um, taking a deep breath, uh, you know, going for a walk. But the thing is, we don't often have all the time we need to do them. So wouldn't it be great if we could have an app that tells us when we need to do, when it's most important to take that breather, when it would be most effective and have the most impact. And that's where we hope this research will take us. Technology lets us do that because if we were, if we're interested in trying to understand how everything that transpires on a daily basis happens to us, um, we have our smartphones, and our smartphones allow us to capture this information in very precise and, and user-friendly ways. This particular study included about 240 people who used the app. We asked them to use it for about 14 days, um, and they used the app up to six times per day, six or seven times per day. And then they also came back a year later and did it again uh, for another 14 days. Um, these were people who were um, living in one uh, apartment complex in the Bronx called Co-op City. 
So that's actually the largest cooperative living uh, development in the world. It has mm-hmm. its own zip code. It's it's a very interesting community. We selected it um, because we wanted to have people who had similar residential uh, and si- similar types of lifestyles. Um, so that's where we went. And we're getting ready now to develop this app out um, where we're hoping now to scale this up to where we have tens of thousands of people using it across the country. You know, it used to be that for some of these types of um, tests we wanted to do, we'd have to bring people into the lab or the clinic and use a computer to do that or have a trained uh, technician or research assistant administer a test. But now the computers that we carry with us in our pockets, um, smartphones, are way more powerful than what used to sit on our desktops even just 10 years ago. Um, So that's really opened up the doors to where we can uh, put a laboratory in everyone's pocket, essentially. So after we collect the data, um, that's actually where the fun begins. So um, uh, one of the other challenges and opportunities afforded by using this type of technology um, pertains to how to deal with big data. So now we have more information than we ever had as researchers. And it's a rich environment for for being able to um, do this kind of research, but sometimes we have so much information we don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So we, we work with colleagues um, in engineering and in our own department who are experts in machine learning and other types of um, uh, sort of high-intensity computing analytics to try and make sense of all the different data streams we get. We're sort of doing the job that's not so glamorous, which is just developing a tool that lets you do these types of measurements. So um, we have colleagues who are um, using these tools, for example, right now working with uh, the National Institute of Health and a company um, that makes glucose monitors. So there's going to be a study with type 2 diabetics to look at how glucose excursions moving outside of uh, uh, sort of the normal normal limits for uh, glucose levels, how that affects your cognitive function. So, you know, we can use this to help evaluate these types of monitors, help evaluate the effectiveness of insulin pumps. So we're doing all that kind of hard work that then um, other companies could just use this uh, to see how their products work and make them better. Employers could use this to monitor uh, their employees to determine what time of the day people are at their peak productivity. being able to identify uh, different kinds of situations or uh, conducting many experiments in their own workplace to how to optimize a productivity. For example, just swapping in different kinds of light bulbs can affect people's moods and productivity. And we'll provide um, a very cost-effective way for people to determine whether or not those actually affect the bottom line. How big is your team? Depends how you define team. So just on this one project, um, the infrastructure project, we have 24 PhDs from different institutions and then plus um, research staff, app developers, technical support. We do work with people, right, and directly with people, and we do bring people into the clinic and do evaluations. But if you were to go to my lab at Penn State, you'll just see graduate students running analyses and uh, two guys drinking Mountain Dew writing apps. (laughs) And in fact, um, our lead app developer is a Penn State alum. He was actually around nine years ago. He was a computer science major, and he was writing games for the first uh, mobile phones. And he's a guy I got to program, to write the first programs that we ran in the stressful day study. 
um, paying him as a consultant to do stuff. And then finally, with our recent grant, we were able to offer him a full-time position. So he's you know, been one of these cases where you find a talented undergraduate, and they do the transformative work, because without him, none of this would have happened. Don't tell him that. I'll have to give him a raise. <laughs> For this project, um, the grant is awarded to Penn State. Um, I'm the principal investigator on it, um, but you know, our team—it is a team effort, and yeah. you know, I've been really lucky to be able to assemble the best people in the world to work on this. Kurt Kling, if you're listening, Dr. Slowinski owes you a raise. Look at this podcast making people money, helping out wherever we can. That's what we do. Our final story is about chatbots. Beth, do you know what a chatbot is? I didn't know what a chatbot was until this interview. Chatbots are, if you're shopping online, a little window pops up, and with maybe there's a picture of somebody there that says, can I help you find whatever you're shopping for? That's actually a robot. That's a computer on the other end, and that is called a chatbot. And I'm the same way as you. I never knew that was... A computer. I always thought it was a real person. Yeah, makes me feel less guilty closing out of them. Now that I know that it's not a real person. It actually makes me feel kind of dumb because I get angry at them (laughs) because they're not answering my questions. The Media Effects Research Lab also studies chatbots. Dr. Sham Sunder joins us again to talk about the work they are doing on chatbots. Chatbots historically have been these uh, chat agents that sit on top of a website or in an app which has this conversation with you. You know how sometimes you might go to an e-commerce website and then you are looking for a product and you open the chat window and then you have this interaction. These days it's risen in prominence and has uh, become an everyday part of e-commerce websites where whenever you have a kind of a first line question, you're faced with a chatbot. And only when the questions get deeper do you engage with a human agent. And this is true even with our online phone service, right? So if you call your bank, you'll have to punch in your numbers and you'll get uh, a very robotic voice answering all your questions or at least answering all your basic concerns. Once you know your balance and you know your you know, basic details about if it's a very involved issue is when you hit zero and go to an actual customer service agent uh, who's a human. The companies save a lot of money by not having to answer the same questions over and over by humans, but rather automating that. And that's where chatbots have come in uh, to place in a very big way. So what are you studying? The main functions of an online chat agent is to interact with users, to respond to their questions, uh, and address their concerns. So bottom line, that's really what uh, chatbots are supposed to do. You know, they can be very good at delivering information much better than FAQ, frequently answered questions on a site uh, because they are much more interactive. Uh, They deliver the messages to users, ask users, think of questions rather than just saying, here's a bunch of questions that most people ask and, you know, here's a bunch of responses to those commonly asked questions. So there's more specificity in the way the chatbots can respond. And so... Uh, One of the things that we study is um, the degree to which that message interactivity can be structured to help users feel more connected to the interface, to engage them more. So if two people having a conversation, uh, there are certain aspects to that conversation that when you break it down technically, we need to imitate in a chatbot. 
that is a as it turns out a very big engineering challenge to have a conversation with an automated agent because uh, if you talk and i talk uh, that's not interactive if you if you ask a question and i respond it's a little bit interactive this is what we call reactivity but if you ask a question and i respond and you ask a follow up question and i respond in a way that takes into account not only your follow up question but also your earlier question then it's considered fully interactive that's when we have what we call contingency in the conversation and that's why many websites for example show that kind of contingency by keeping track of uh, your activity on the site by showing what we call footprints where you've been in different parts of the site or if you go to a google search engine as you start typing in it'll show you all the other searches you've done in the recent past so it kind of knows you so to speak that's kind of building in that contingency or that interaction history that you might have and so those are all aspects of human human conversation where you know if you meet a friend and you talk they kind of know you from other conversations and then take that into account while responding to your more immediate uh, or you know present question and so building that into a chatbot as it turns out is a very big challenge but if you can build it it can have all kinds of very very important psychological uh, consequences and some of our research have shown that um, there are ways to build contingency you know you can actually just acknowledge what the user's response was that itself goes a long way than just giving an answer uh, you said and then you can repeat what they said and that itself can build contingency furthermore these days with the increasing uh, you know artificial intelligence the chatbots are becoming smart enough to pull together different Uh, responses at different points in time in the chat and give you more kind of a comprehensive coordinated response and that is full contingency and that is a real promise and we find that that affects people's not only people's attitudes toward the chatbot and the site that sponsors the chatbot but also the degree to which they believe in the content the degree to which they would follow up on the content of the conversation another line of research has to do with how we present the chatbot you know many times the emphasis uh, among designers is to make the chatbot as human like as possible so even though at some level we are trying to imitate humanness in conversation we found in our research that uh, providing human like cues on the interface like you know making the chatbot look like a human for example unnecessarily raises expectations so some of our studies have shown that people expect more interactive communication if the image is anthropomorphic if the icon is not just a bubble but instead if it's a human being picture of a human being with uh, you know sometimes they even have their uh, headsets on and it seems like this this is a just a you know little uh, warmth that the designer induces into it but it actually can be detrimental to people's psychology because their expectations get right uh, you know raised as a result of these little icons we've also uh, looked at how chatbots should express themselves should chatbots show empathy because when you think about it that is disingenuous right because chatbots have not been through that experience so how can they empathize sympathy might be okay but empathy is that is that even legitimate coming from a chatbot and so we did an experiment where we compared uh, expression of empathy expression of uh, sympathy and no expression of any kind 
And we found that uh, empathy was just as good as sympathy, and both were better than you know no expression of support. And so at some level, we find that um, uniquely human aspects of conversation, uniquely human attributes are indeed okay coming from a chatbot. Because what a chatbot does by initiating a conversation is it triggers a social script in the heads of the users. And that social script then makes you users treat the machine as if it's another social entity. And there's a long line of research in the, from the lab I come from at Stanford where we've demonstrated that uh, computers are social actors. Computers are treated as social actors. We are polite to computers that talk. Um, we consider computers that are part of our team as uh, having uh, more affinity to us and listen to computers in our team more than we listen to computers in the opposing camp, so to speak. Um, we think that uh, male-voiced computers are better at certain topics than female-voiced computers, even though voice is just an artificial entity that you can attach to any computing. So we don't stop to think that these are machines. Once such social script is triggered, we are automatically social and apply the rules of human-human social interaction to human-computer interaction. And so we are seeing that with uh, chatbots as well. We've also encountered the so-called uncanny valley. If you make it too social or too human, people then freak out. It becomes too eerie. Uh, so this is called uncanny valley in the literature on human-robot interaction. You know, the more human-like the robot is, people are uh, you know like it more. But there reaches a point where it's at the very high end of humanness, where it's it's too freaky, it's too eerie for it to be human, and that's when all your liking kind of you know, jumps, takes a nosedive, and that's what we call the uncanny valley. Comparing the two stories, fake news, I feel like your research is helping fix a problem. Mm -hmm. With chatbots, your research is helping to improve something that's already happening. I mean, it's not really a problem you're looking to fix. What's the outcome of your chatbot research? Are you giving information to Google? You know, like, where, where do your studies go? I think even in the chatbot scenario, we are dealing with the problem-solving situation because people loathe to interact with the machines uh, if they have if they have the expectation of interacting with a human agent, and they also don't get the sense of conversation that they get with humans when they interact with the machine. So the problem here is is uh, solving that mental block that users have, and also the engineering uh, handicap that we have. We cannot really design a fully conversant you know, human being. So how do we kind of solve that problem? We do that by coming halfway with these uh, contingency building devices in the linguistic characteristics as well as in the exchange, message exchange characteristics of an interaction. And users are also evolving to a point where they're accepting of chatbots. I think as a culture, we've now become much more accepting of a smart speaker uh, in terms of interacting with them, although we have other concerns about their privacy and them always listening and so forth. But at least in terms of the oddity of you talking to a barrel in your on your kitchen table, I think is now dwindling. I mean, it's no longer that much of an oddity where 10 years ago that I would look completely you know, futuristic, and they found use for it. I mean, they found uh, legitimate uh, advantages. In the morning when you get up and ask for the weather or ask, ask uh, the smart speaker to play NPR, 
you know, it's a very convenient tool to have this voice-based interaction. But since people have warmed up to this technology, uh, that says something about how you you can introduce a technology even though people may not be ready for it. But then if you learn and study people's responses and tweak technology as the people's accept acceptance goes up, then you can come to a happy middle ground where even though the technology is not fully developed, there are certain things that the technology can do that people are happy with, that they can live with. And people also realize that there are certain certain things that technology cannot do, and they will not bother with a, a smart speaker to answer those kinds of questions, for example. So I think it's, it's a matter of learning both, studying both, both users and technology, and trying to, uh, you know, come up with a happy median that can help both users and designers. Thank you for the NPR plug. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Reach. And a special thanks to Dr. Sham Sinder and Martin Slowinski. And don't forget, all the episodes of Reach can be found on our website. Please consider making a contribution to WPSU so that we can bring you content like this. Visit wpsu.org slash donate. Thanks.